you guys would open your Bibles or uh, read on your phone or even listen to me while I read from Matthew 4, verse 1 through 11. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting for forty days and forty nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered them. He answered him, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple, and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, Again, it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to test. Again, the devil took him to a very <clears throat> high mountain, and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to them, All these I will give to you, if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall not worship, or you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. This is the word of the Lord. It is absolutely true, and it is given to us in love. Thanks, Drew. Hey, everybody. Uh, my name is Harrison. It's an honor to serve here on the preaching team with Todd and Andy and Jim. And um, it's also just so great to hear Michael's voice singing today, uh, if you're feeling that with me. Excited to have him back with us, too. So we've been going through the whole story of the Bible in our series called The Greatest Story. And before we get into the passage today, I want to do what some shows do, where at the beginning of the episode, it shows you a recap of the past episodes, but just the ones that matter for the things you need to know for the episode today. Like you'll see a character from season one that you thought was dead, and it shows a flash of them. You're like, man, that guy's coming back for sure today. That's what, that's what I want to do for you before we dive in. Um, so last scene on The Greatest Story. Open scene with the first two human beings, Adam and Eve, being formed very good by God and were the guardians of creation. The next scene, them talking with the serpent, Satan himself, who had a secret design to get those guardians killed. And to accomplish this murder, he convinces them to eat the one fruit God told them not to eat. He tells them subtle lies, leading them to doubt the words of God. Uh, did he say you'll die? You, you surely won't die. And to tempt them to ambitiously circumvent God. Actually, he knows if you eat it, you'll become like him. And in this time of testing, when confronted by this evil, Adam and Eve, our first parents, gave in. And they eat the fruit, and this decision gives them a terminal disease of sin, makes them evil inside. They don't become like God, but they become like the serpent. And that story has many elements that will be similar to our story today. In another scene, God seeking Adam and Eve out and making a promise to the serpent, to Satan, that a singular seed of Eve, one person one day will crush the serpent. And this promise leads us in later scenes 
to wonder at every descendant of Eve, every individual story, is this person the snake-crushing seed? The one who, unlike Adam and Eve, won't give in to temptation, who can somehow defeat the serpent? Will it be Cain or Abel? Will it be Noah? Will it be Abraham? Will it be Moses? Will it be David? And then in each story, we were utterly let down. The serpent's evil infected everyone. Cain kills Abel. Noah gets drunk and his kids shame him. Abraham gives his wife away to another king out of fear. David commits adultery and then murder. And it leads you to wonder, where is the promised seed? How long until we see it? Is he or she coming at all? And we can feel this, I think, especially today. When we see leaders of the church we look up to, even Matt Chandler this past week, publicly confronted with ways they've fallen short and given in to the snake. And we see news stories like that and our heart breaks. Because though we know intellectually they're just regular people like me or you, in our hearts there's a longing for someone who is truly good through and through. But when the rubber meets the road, evil infects everyone. We found out things like our favorite theologian Jonathan Edwards owned slaves. Our favorite justice seeker Martin Luther King Jr. had many affairs on his wife. Our favorite apologist Robbie Zacharias sexually abused people. And we get let down over and over again. And the Bible actually says the serpent's evil infects every person in your life. Every single person who has ever lived. Actually, except one. One story doesn't read that way. Rumor has it there was a guy who was tempted and tested to the extreme by the prince of the powers of darkness himself. And this guy's response was something we have never seen before in a human being and have never seen since. And if rumors about this guy are true, then it means the seed crusher himself came to this earth and walked among us. So this morning we're going to look at this guy's temptations. It's Jesus, by the way. Spoiler alert. Jesus uh, faced with hunger first, then Jesus faced with danger, then Jesus faced with power. And we'll ask, as we look at his hunger, his danger, his power, is he it? Is he the one we've been looking for? Is he the snake crusher? First, pray with me. Jesus, we ask you, Lord, that you would reveal yourself to us this morning. Show us who you really are when the chips are on the table, when you're held up to the fire, give us fresh eyes to see you, and by doing so, to adore you. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So first, we're going to look at Jesus faced with hunger. Look with me in verse 1 here. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. So this account starts right, uh, right after Jesus' baptism by John, um, this moment where a dove comes out of the sky in front of a large crowd of people and descends on Jesus, and a voice from heaven says audibly, this is my beloved son right here with whom I am well pleased. And if you're an Israelite onlooker, and you're believing what you're seeing is from God, then you're wondering in this moment, is this who we've been waiting for? But also because of your history, you're also just waiting for this guy to mess up. God said Adam and Eve were very good. He said David was a man after his own heart. And look how they turned out. It's only a matter of time until he gets tested and he breaks. 
But thankfully, if that's you, you don't have to wait long because verse 1, then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And the word tempt here also means to test, meaning to reveal what's really there. And the Bible talks about our testing in terms of metallurgy. And uh, Alec, you want to put that picture up of the fire? Thank you, sir. Uh, so metallurgy, what this is right here that you're seeing, I'm not an expert in this, but I'll tell you from a non-expert perspective. Uh, this is a big chunk of rock. It's got some gold in it, some other stuff. And you put it into the crucible, which is that, that little cauldron there that's really hot. And you heat it up to really, really high temperatures, like 2,000 degrees. And all of it melts down. And the stuff that's not the real precious metal in there, that's not real gold, just burns away. You lose it. Uh, but the real gold stays and turns into liquid. And then you pour that liquid out into, you know, a bar of gold or a ring or something that you're trying to make with it. And you have much pure gold as a result of that process. And, and when you do that, you find out how much gold is really there and how much of it is just fool's gold, other stuff. The Bible talks about us in terms of this way, in terms of metallurgy, that, and it says we are mixed rock with some gold and a lot of other stuff, and God puts us to the test, puts us to the heat to see what's really there. And usually for us, it's mostly, you know, gets burned away, and you might have a little bit of gold in there, but Jesus here goes through this process, the metallurgy process, being tested in the crucible, in the cauldron, right there. In, in his cauldron, Alec, you go to the next picture. Uh, his cauldron is this uh, very blurry, grainy image that I got from Google. Of, this is the wilderness of Judea. So it's a, it's a hot, hilly, rocky, not sand, but rock desert in Judea. Um, let's go back to the other picture, Alec. It's a lot better than this one. All right. Um, so this is, uh, this is Jesus' crucible, um, and we're going to find out what's inside of him. So then verse 2, after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. So he's still drinking water uh, during this time, but for 40 days uh, he doesn't eat. And this is understood as the longest a person can go without food before doing um, irreparable damage to their body. So uh, the he is hungry statement is a vast understatement. Um, he is hours away from irreversible damage, meaning he's famished, he's malnourished, he's dying for food. Jesus is heated up to 2,000 degrees. And I'm going to leave this image up as we go, just so you remember. We're going to keep referring back to it. This is what's happening here in the story. And in verse 3, the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. Spirit had led Jesus into the wilderness to fast for a purpose, for testing. But Satan senses Jesus' weakness and says, oh, forget about that. You're the, son, you're the son of God, aren't you? Why can't you just make, use your powers to make these stones turn into loaves of bread? Um, you can make the call and eat right now. Think of the smell of hot bread. Think of the taste. You're starving. It's day 40. Come on, man. This is it. Do it. There's one time in high school, actually, I uh, wasn't in, in the same situation, but I, uh, I got food poisoning. Um, and uh, during this time, I came home, threw up in the front yard, went upstairs, proceeded to throw up about 10 more times until blood started coming out when I was throwing up because I had torn my stomach lining. Um, threw up about 10 more times, mostly blood. Eventually, I had to move to the shower because blood was coming out of other areas of my body, too. Um, and then I go into a full body cramp, basically, as all my muscles start to tense up due to lack of, of liquids. So my mom takes me to the hospital. Get there, they give me an IV of fluids, um, some medicine, eventually fall asleep. Um, and the thing is, 
about an IV with fluids is that that fluid comes in your body and your brain doesn't register that you ever received that fluid. So I slept all night, woke up the next morning, and my thirst senses are as thirsty as if I had not gotten any water since throwing up probably 20 to 30 times of, of liquids and blood. And so, and I can't have any fluids for the next like two to three hours because I would throw up again. And so I'm just waiting there. Um, and it was, I was so thirsty. <laughs> I remember thinking some scary thoughts that I've never thought before. Like if I kick that doctor right there back into that wall, I could grab that IV bag, rip it open, and get a little bit of that liquid on my, on my tongue before they stopped me. And there were, there were serious considerations if you've ever been really thirsty before. Serious thoughts come through your head. And instead, I decided just to grumble and complain uh, until they gave me ice chips early. Um, but uh, Jesus is in this similar scenario, not with water, but with food. And he's actually more desperate because there's no IV. He's actually malnourished on day 40, and Satan gives him this image of bread and a way to get it. And how does he respond? Does he grumble and complain? Does he desperately give in? Verse 4, he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. This is a quote from Deuteronomy 8, which is the moment God tells Israel what they were supposed to learn during their time in the wilderness. And the the truth they were supposed to learn is that their relationship to God is like their relationship to food. They were made to hunger for God and his goodness and his righteousness more than anything else. And feeding on him would satisfy them. But the thing is, Israel didn't learn that. Their selfish hunger for excess food, for comfort, for control, for independence, led them to grumble and complain, to go against God, and to use one another for their own ends. And how about you? You haven't lived in the wilderness, probably. uh, But what do you hunger for most in this life? Especially when the heat is turned up in your life. When all your buttons are pressed, your pet peeves are triggered, you didn't sleep a lot last night, you're angry, you're overworked, your sibling is bothering you, your kids are screaming at you. What do you hunger for then? If you're like me, maybe it's a desperate plea in your soul for comfort, for quiet, hunger to let up my anger, to assert myself, to meet my needs. I don't care who gets in the way, I'm doing it. And then now can you imagine a person whose deepest hunger when the heat is turned all the way up, his deepest hunger in that moment is to love his neighbor as himself. Someone who is starving at his core not to assert himself, but to lay down his life for his friends. Someone who when he misses sleep or misses a meal or gets into a bind, he becomes more desperate not to break down, but to serve the people around him. What might it feel like to be in a relationship with such a person? A person who would never try to use you, would always be there for you, and without a second thought would drag his reputation through the mud, would give his body and his life to help you because he hungers for that, the ways of God. If this story is true, then this is Jesus, who lives off of every word that comes from the mouth of God, the only person in history to do that. Could this be the one? And so the first temptation, the first third of the stone is melted down as Jesus is faced with hunger. Drink a little water, it made me thirsty, thinking all that stuff. Throw out your food after four days, folks. Don't, don't risk it, all right? It's not worth it. It's not worth it. Um, all right, Jesus faced with hunger. Second, Jesus faced with danger. 
Uh, look with me at verse 5. The devil took him to the holy city, this is Jerusalem, and set him on the pinnacle of the temple, the edge of the tall outer wall of the temple. So there's, there's an outter wall. Um, this is a supernatural to the, uh, down to the ground. And, uh, and he said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. So Satan here quotes Psalm 91, one of my favorite psalms actually, a psalm about God's protection of his people, how for those who take refuge in him, he actually commands angels to come be by your side so you don't stumble and fall. And it's a psalm that's designed to instill a trust in God and the people who sing it. Um, that he will protect them in the midst of danger. But instead of trusting God, Satan says, throw yourself down, put yourself voluntarily in needless danger to test and see what God will do. You don't need trust. It won't feel good when you, when you jump off and he finally proves that he's going to protect you in the midst of all this stuff. So Jesus had been in the wilderness for 40 days. And Mark says uh, that he was with the wild beasts. Uh, meaning in this wilderness, there's uh, lions and bears that are as hungry as Jesus that are desperately looking for a meal. And so he has been feeling danger for the last 40 days acutely. And more than that danger, he knows that his mission on earth is to succumb to danger. That one day he's going to be tortured and killed. Um, and so he's thinking about that danger too. And then Satan takes him up to this high place and he's reminded all, of all that as he looks over the precipice and feels all that danger that he was in, that he will be in, and Satan capitalizes on it, and tempts him, and he says, put God to the test, see if he's going to protect you. Wouldn't it feel good to get a little protection? How very comforting it would be to convince God to reach out and catch you, and avoid all that danger. Now, the nation of Israel, during their time in the wilderness, were told to camp at one place that didn't have any running water. And the people felt they were in danger as a result. And they started arguing with Moses, their, their God-appointed leader. And they said, give us water to drink, Moses. And he says, don't test the Lord. Look at all he's done for you. He's going to take care of us. Don't, don't worry about it. Just, just be patient. And they said, why did you bring us out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? And they start getting stones together to stone and kill Moses. God intervenes in this moment of them feeling the danger. He intervenes. He says, Moses, take, take your stick. Hit that rock over there. Water will start coming out. Uh, he does it. They drink. And Moses calls the name of the place Massa, which means testing. Because in response to perceived danger, they tested the Lord by saying, is the Lord among us or not? See, testing God comes from a rotten root of disbelief in God. A rotten root that contrary to Israel's assumptions, it won't come back to life after the testing. I need a sign to prove that he'll take care of me. Just one more sign. Yeah, I've gotten a lot of signs in the past, a whole book of signs. And think about Israel. God rained down bread and quail from heaven for them in the wilderness, led them by this, this big fiery cloudy pillar. He, uh, he parted the Red Sea. He sent plagues to Egypt. And they're like, yeah, but one more sign. Then I'll believe in him. Then I'll trust him. That's testing God. And Israel did this often in the midst of danger, and God forbids it because he knows that it's no solution to stubborn disbelief. But what about you? What about me? How do we respond to danger in our lives? When someone almost hits you in traffic, when you feel pain in a weird area of your body and you Google it uh, and see all the different diagnoses that it could be, when the bank account falls much lower than you're comfortable with, when you don't get into that college or you don't get that job, 
Do you look at God and say, why did you bring me here to do this to me? Just to kill me. I don't care about all the times you saved me in the past. Give me the safety now. Prove yourself. Or maybe that anger manifests itself as a period of distance from God for you. Where instead you seek places of safety and sinful patterns that you know God wouldn't approve of. The truth is, all of us do those things at various times in our lives. Well, not all of us, actually. How does Jesus respond to the utmost danger, danger of being torn apart by wild beasts, of falling off this precipice, of a danger way worse than anyone's ever faced, a danger of enduring God's punishment for mankind? How does he respond? Verse 7, Jesus said, Again it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. So he quotes half of a verse from Deuteronomy 6 that, 6 that continues, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test as you tested him at Massa, the place of testing with the water and the rock. See, Jesus in this moment again operates at his core differently than me and you, differently than Israel. He trusts God. His root is alive and well watered and pure, and no possible situation can shake it. So in the face of total danger, his fear doesn't cause him for a second to waver. Now let me ask you this. Can you imagine having a leader who is not driven in the slightest bit by their fear? A leader who sleeps in a tiny fishing boat in the midst of a massive storm. A leader who looks at our greatest fears, even the kingdoms of the earth that have set themselves against him, powers and principalities of darkness, the things that would keep us up at night, a leader who looks at those things and just laughs. <laughs> That's it. That's what you got. A leader who causes legions of demons to beg for their lives and tremble. Can you imagine a leader who sets his face unwaveringly towards his own torture and even sweats blood and it's fitting for the task that he's about to go through and still gets up and says the time is at hand. Can you imagine that? Let me tell you, it's not me. It's not Todd. It's not your elders. You don't know any leaders like that on this earth, regular people. But if the story is true, then Jesus is that leader. Could he be the one that we're looking for? And so the second third of the stone melts down as Jesus is faced with danger. Jesus faced with hunger, danger now, and then lastly, Jesus faced with power. Look with me in in verse 8. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. This is probably, again, a supernatural vision of all the kingdoms of the world, the people in them, their splendor, all the palaces, the cities, the clothes, the jewels. And Satan said to him, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. So though God is the rightful king of the universe, uh, Jesus calls Satan the ruler of this world, a world which is in rebellion against God. Satan is the ruler and master of people who are evil. And in this sense, this is a real offer. And for Jesus, it's an offer to get to the end of his mission, to rule the world on David's eternal throne without going through the suffering that is a part of his mission, the suffering and dying on the cross. So here Jesus is faced with unlimited, unearned power to be used for his own benefit. He could be the most powerful person in the universe, distance himself from God the Father and the Spirit, take over creation, enjoy the splendor of it all for himself, maybe even do a little good on the side. If he just does one thing, worship Satan just one time, just for a minute. 
reminds you of Adam and Eve and Satan's temptation. You will be like God if you eat this fruit. Power. All you got to do is listen to me. Don't listen to God. Just, just this one time. Just take a bite of it. It's no big deal. Reminds you also of the compromises Israel made with other gods. Gods who promised fruitful agriculture, protection from nations, power. All you got to do is disobey God this one time and make this little idol and fall down before it just one time. Reminds you of the countless stories of megachurch pastors who cut corners, who lied about their numbers, who faked hundreds of baptisms every Sunday, fired all the elders who disagreed with them, sneaked in a little money and sex on the side. Power. All you got to do is disobey God this one time. Obey and worship me, that's all. How much wreckage is in the wake of these one-time compromises? The power grabs of Adam and Eve, of Israel, the leaders of churches, churches that didn't survive, whose members are now left the faith or are dealing with trauma and from the abuse and counseling. Wreckage is not far from us here in Greensboro, not far from us here at Hope Chapel. If we're honest with ourselves, we too make these decisions every day. For me, my temptation right now is to be a people pleaser at my core. To have the approval of others as my God, even the approval of you guys in my job here. To see a praise for a job well done. All I have to do is disobey God, skip praying, skip reading and hearing from God, skip taking a real Sabbath. But the praise will feel good, right? Even as my soul dies underneath. That's a temptation for me. But what about you? Have you compromised and disobeyed God to lay down your life for something else? Money or comfort or achievement or a lover or even your family? All we have to do is disobey God this one time and you can have that thing. You can have that idol. And we do it. Make the, we make the, the choice and then it all comes crashing down. But there was one guy who was really offered it all. All of our idols put together, the whole world in its splendor. And not only that, on top of it all, he was offered a way out of the worst possible experience a human can go through. Torture, death, and the punishment God has stored up for the whole world. And did he take the offer? Look in verse 10. Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. So Jesus sees all the power and pleasure he could have. He sees a way out of the cross and he says, no. He is not like you. He's not like me. At his core, he is utterly committed to worshiping and serving God. And no possible offer or temptation could shake that. This man will never cut corners. He will never wrongly use his power to his own advantage. He will always do good. And because of that, he doesn't give in to the serpent. But he takes the serpent by the neck and yells at him and launches him across the desert. Says, be gone, Satan. And we know from the rest of the story that from this time, Satan's days are numbered. And when the time comes appointed by the Father, Jesus' foot is coming down on that serpent. And he will take that paper and cast it in the lake of eternal fire and burn so that Satan can never have power over his people again. Because the snake crusher was here. He's the person that Adam could have been but wasn't. The person that Israel could have been but was not. The person that you were meant to be but aren't. Jesus is the one that God promised. And if this story is true, then the snake crusher was here on earth and he defeated this snake in that wilderness. So the last bit of rock is melted down 
into this liquid. And what we find is an amount of liquid gold that's the exact same size as a rock. For the first time in history, something that's worth more than if you gave everything away in your life and traded it for this, it still wouldn't be close to being worth what, what the person in front of you is worth. Jesus is worthy. This is what we find in his testing. And so what does it mean for us if the story is true? Three things. First, if the story is true, then Jesus is the one that you are looking for. Who else better to carry the most intimate things in your life than the person mentioned in this story? All other leaders have baggage. There's one who is not driven by his hunger to eat you, not ruled by his fear and self-protection, and not hiding a lust for power to use for his own advantage. It's Jesus. And you can trust this guy with everything that you have. Second, so, so he is the one you're looking for. Second, Jesus is not just the one you're looking for, but he's the one you desperately need today. The New Testament expands on the story and says that Jesus was crushing the snake in that wilderness, not for his own benefit, but actually for yours. It's like he's an American athlete competing on the Olympic stage. He's our representative of, our, of, of God's people. Um, and he wins the race. Except he wins, and he doesn't go up to the podium afterwards. He gets tortured, crucified, and killed at the end of the story. And then you get a letter in the mail from him, inviting you to go up on stage and get the medal and be celebrated after the event. The New Testament said he won so that he could trade places with you. He wants you to have the victory to avoid the punishment you deserve for your twisted hungers, for your self-protection schemes, for your power grabbing, and to live forever with God. And he did it because he loves you. So what it means for you today is that you have a real offer in this story to get out of the gutter of your shame and self-loathing and to get onto the podium that this man deserves and to feel God rejoicing over you with loud singing. And will you take that offer today? Jesus is the only person who can really offer you that. Will you please take it today? He's the one you need. So Jesus is the one you're looking for. He's the one you desperately, desperately need. And lastly, he's the one you can be like. He's the only one who has ever lived to, to beat the snake. Uh, he could teach you how to do it, actually. He says you need the spirit, his spirit inside of you to do it. And you need to train, you need to study his ways, you need to imitate him. And he, he's going to lead you into a life that feels like this. But he promises that you can beat the snake more and more as you grow as a Christian. And there are people in here with real victory sitting around you over sinful areas of their life because they've trusted in this guy to help them do it. And so do you believe that you could actually beat the snake in those areas of sin that never seem to go away? If you have any hope, it's with this guy. And he says it's going to take some heat, but you can do it. So Jesus is the one you're looking for, the one you desperately need, and the one you can be like. Let me end with this. In the last book of the Bible, there's a prophetic vision that John has of heaven. He sees a scroll with seven seals, and it has the future contained in it. And there's no one found worthy or able to open the scroll. And John just weeps because no one can do it. Then one of the guys close to John says, hey, weep no more. Look, the lion of the tribe of Judah the one who gave his life as a ransom for the people, the one prophesied about. The snake crusher himself has conquered. He is worthy of opening it. And Jesus opens the scroll and people sing and rejoice. And so today, 
Well, might you hear these words? You stop crying about the darkness of the people around us for a minute. And might you hear these words? Look at the snake crusher himself in the wilderness, squeezing the life out of the serpent. See him melted down as pure gold. He is worthy to break the seal and open the scroll. Weep no more. It's time for rejoicing. He is the one we're looking for. Amen. Jesus, thank you so much for coming and, Lord, giving us this, this trade, offering us your, your record, um, Lord, that we may come and experience God's, God's joy and God's pleasure. Um, and, Lord, would you help us today? Jesus, would you come alongside of us? Help us to, to rejoice in you as we sing this next song. Help us to see you as you are and help us to, to step into that ourselves, to be in you and to feel, feel that joy in us. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.